I would like to welcome you to the USF podcast. Welcome to another episode of the USF podcast. I'm here with my guest, Keith Frome, CEO and co-founder of College Summit. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Nice to be here. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here. And I just want to start off with, when did you come up with the idea for College Summit? And what was the starting point of this is something that you feel that you should invest your time with? So um, I have two other co-founders, Derek Canty and J.B. Schramm. And we still are all playing a role at College Summit. But we began when um, JB uh, was a teen center director here in Adams Morgan, which is a neighborhood in Washington, D.C. And he was running an after-school program uh, for teens um, in the basement of a church, which is actually right down the street from where our headquarters is today. This is about 23 years ago. Wow. And in that after-school program, uh, kids would present their report card at the door of the of the church basement, and if they had a B or higher, they could come in and hang out. Okay. And it was a safe space. Okay. Uh, they could play pool, they could uh, watch TV. This is, believe it or not, in the days before the internet or computers. Um, and JB started to get to know these kids, and he started to tutor them and uh, started to learn about their lives and their hopes and their dreams and aspirations. And what he found out was that um, they were thinking they knew something about college, but they were not on any kind of pathway to go to college. And there was no one encouraging them to go. Their schools, their high schools were set up to have them graduate from high school, but there was no expectation that they would go to any kind of post-secondary. There was certainly no support. There were no programs. And they would be the first in their family to go to college. So the family didn't have that kind of cultural capital to share with them. And, um, and he knew, uh, being a college graduate himself yeah. and having a master's degree from Harvard, that uh, the, the gateway to opportunity and to prosperity and to longevity was, um, you know, was college. And so he wanted these kids to go to college. Um, and uh, is that okay that I stop? Yeah, no, you're yeah, fine. So um, at the time, I was... Um, a writing teacher and um, an assistant dean of freshmen. I was a senior advisor to freshmen at Harvard College, and I had been working with the admissions office there, doing presentations and traveling around representing Harvard um, to various boarding schools and high schools. So <clears throat> JB invited me down to teach his kids how to go to college. Okay. And um, there were four of them who wanted to, to learn about this. So JB and I worked with the four, these four kids over a long weekend, over, especially over Columbus Day weekend. And um, we put together really a three-day workshop that covered everything about going to college. And um, the one thing that I noticed is that they were, they were awesome people. Mm-hmm. They had great skills. They had uh, either non-existent or fairly low test scores and grades. But they had amazing, amazing stories to tell. So what we decided to do, and I was a writing teacher by training yeah. and by profession, is that we would really um, focus on getting them to write down and tell their personal stories as their personal statements. We developed a technique um, in that um, in those three days for how to write your personal statement yeah. so that your utterly authentic and unique voice came out. Yeah. And uh, it turned out that technique is actually really easy to teach. It's really easy to learn, 
and it almost always generates a very powerful piece of writing mm -hmm. personal so those kids put together uh, their personal statement we developed a college list with them uh, we taught them about financial aid we taught them about how to get the help that they need to navigate through high school and college and and lo and behold all four applied and all four got in and all four went and yeah. all four got full scholarships to wow. various places how, how long was that process to teach them the those intangibles that you were discussing right there uh, we did it in three days three days and that became uh, the kernel what we developed and we did it again the next year sure. JB and I did um, and JB really is the entrepreneur of the group um, in the in the true sense of entrepreneurial yeah. spirit um, and I and I've told the story for two decades as an educator I left those three days feeling just really good yeah. like it was awesome we did good work with those kids and they did great work and I'm really proud of them but I was content to go back to my you know my job JB who really is, the, the, by nature, a real entrepreneur, saw potential for an organization. And he saw that we needed to, we had bottled something, we had captured something, mm -hmm. um, and that was quite unique at the time, and we needed to duplicate it. And so he dedicated his life to, to duplicating this duplicate. and building off of it and building an organization around it. Gotcha. And so that next year... So then the next, next year, time, we yeah. did the same thing same in thing. the basement, he and I did. Okay. Um, and then um, he really wanted to turn it into an organization. So then the following year, he knew that we needed more talent than just the two of but us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he, uh, he had um, met a brilliant youth development specialist out in Colorado named Derek Canty. Derek Canty, okay. And said, Derek, I, you know, Keith is doing the academic stuff, but we really need to work on youth development and grit and tenacity. And so this was before grit and tenacity became the, like the big words in education yeah. that they are today. This was over two decades ago. Can you come and build that component and let's do this big workshop with youth development techniques that Derek had developed and the academic and counseling techniques that I had brought to the table. Let's put them together, do this on a college campus, and really make it into a residential four-day workshop. So then the third year, we did that at Connecticut College. Connecticut College, okay. Um, we were hosted by a visionary dean there named Lee Coffin, who's now uh, just been named dean of admissions at Dartmouth College. Um, but he opened up the campus for us, and, and he gets a lot of credit for seeing that um, at the time colleges really had a diversity problem and this is before they even this is a long time before anybody like today say we need more diversity we need diversity and opportunity but Lee saw that and saw that colleges could have a real powerful role to play in that yeah so he opened up the campus for Connecticut College and uh, we got a staff together of writing coaches and college counselors and youth development professionals wow. And uh, we all assembled at Connecticut College, and we um, had 25 or 30 kids. I think most of them were coming from Colorado, and some were coming from Washington. They flew in, and we created this uh, residential workshop that we've now done for 20 years, wow. every single summer. So before you got to Connecticut, how were you getting the word out? Uh, flyers, just passive uh, word of mouth well, for that base To the kids? Yeah, yeah to the uh, kids. Well, the kids were recruited from JB's Teen Center, which okay. is from Church of the Savior here in Washington. Okay. Then Derek's youth group became uh, the pool that we got kids from, so then it was both. Gotcha. Um, but then, you know, I mean, this is an interesting story. Um, and this is, this is the essence of what we do. 
and I give the kids credit for it. So the kids were entrepreneurial. Okay. The kids themselves, the 17-year-olds, they had a profound experience at this workshop, spiritual, emotional, uh, intellectual, um, and they were really transformed, and they continue to be transformed every single summer by what was it we were able to, to deliver to them. But then what they did, which we did not expect to do, we didn't even think they would do, we didn't even imagine this, the kids went back to their schools and started talking about it with their friends and actually started to transfer some of the stuff they learned to their to friends. The friends. Yeah. Um, early on, um, there was a student who went back to his school and he said to his principal, I want to read my personal statement to the whole senior class and then it's such an easy process, I want to teach them how to do it. So have a, all, have a whole senior class assembly and I'm gonna, this was a school in Oakland, I want to read my personal statement to them and then I'm gonna teach them how I did it and have them do it. And the principal's like, well, all right, let's see what happens. <laughs> and the, and the, child, the young man did it. And it was, and it was awesome. Yeah. So then what happened, then stuff like this started to percolate. Yeah. The uh, principal started to call us and say, call JB really and say, like, what are you doing? Mm -hmm. And can you do it for everybody in the school? <laughs> and then that became, that, that request. Yeah became our organizational thrust, trying to solve that problem okay. of how we can um, export what happens at this workshop on behalf of all the students in the school. And we have been, how do you build a business plan yeah. around that? How do you make that sustainable? How do you scale that? How do you um, programmatically export, refract and echo out what happens? These are the problems we've been working on for 20 years. So when you did after the Connecticut uh, 25, 30 students, when did you, did you know beforehand that you wanted to go the nonprofit route? Or it was, was it after that experience that you said, look, this is what we should do as a business? Yeah, it's very on. interesting. We yeah. never, ever, ever considered doing it as a business. Okay. Why? That'd yeah, be well, the yeah. obvious yeah, question, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, I don't think we ever... It was never a deliberate decision, and we never sat down and said, "Well, we could do this for profit. We could do this not for profit. We just did it not for profit." I think that's because we were we met JB and I met in Divinity School. We're Divinity School students, <laughs> so <laughs> like we're by nature not for profit yeah. people. It's okay. just our culture. It's our breeding. It's our <laughs> you know. It's just who we are. Um, but we had to make some big decisions about how to fund it. Okay. There's interesting funding. Once you make the decision for not for, if you make it not for profit, you've got to make some decisions about how you're going to mm. going to fund it. And so, um, a, in the very beginning, we said we're going to work through. We're not going to work through or with school districts. We're going to work through and with youth groups, oh, okay. church groups, boys and, you know, boys and girls after school. Now, why is that? Well, yeah. that's because that was our roots. It was youth groups and church groups and things like that. Yeah. Once again, our divinity background. Um, at the, but also we thought, you know, working with school districts and schools is, is very complex and it would inhibit our speed. Gotcha. But we, um, we, when we got our first big grant... I remember this to this day when we got our first big grant. Um, the foundation said, uh, if you want to scale this thing, you will have to work with school districts. So that's where the go where the kids are. 
you want to work with yeah. low-income kids, go where they are, and they are in high schools. Yeah. So you've got to figure out a strategy for working with high schools. And so that we, you connect that dot to principals calling us saying, can you do this on behalf of all the other students? Can you figure out how to do that? Mm-hmm. Well, you got sort of a mandate there. And, and so we responded to the, to the requests of the principals and decided very early on to work through and with schools and school districts. How was that process for grant writing? You know, that was your first big grant. And I'm sure you yeah. guys were sweating a little bit of bullets of like, are we going to get this from this particular foundation? Well, we, um, you know, uh, to be honest with you, um, JB in particular is just a really popular guy. He's a <laughs> okay. really friendly guy. <laughs> well, and he helps. knows a lot of people. Oh, that helps, right? <laughs> and so... Um, we had friend, our friends helped us and um, introduced us to to uh, decision makers who took on, took you know took meetings with us, and so we worked our network to get the meetings, and then we made our presentation. It was verbal at that time. I mean, I have a funny story to tell about it. If you oh no, of course, yeah, talk about, about it about that first grant. Yeah, that, that, it's yeah. a very funny story in retrospect. But when we got the first grant, I had a, I had a full time job. Hmm. And I was the assistant headmaster of a, of a private school in Manhattan. And, uh, <laughs> and, um, and so the meeting for this foundation was in New York, and it was at, at noon, I think it was lunchtime. Oh, okay. So I took a quote-unquote lunch break. If you've ever run a school, there's no lunch breaks. Okay. But I took a lunch break, dashed off to the foundation, talked to them with JB, and they I, I'm pretty sure they agreed on the spot to give us $50,000 to, right. to fund it. I went back, but it was like an hour, and I got back to the school, and like all hell had broken loose <laughs> in this lovely incident in the lunchroom, and my boss is like, where were you, dude? I said, I was at this big foundation, and I got $50,000 for this program I'm starting, and he looked at me, and at the time, I was mad at him. He was mad at me, and I was like, what are you talking about being mad at me? I just went out and did this good thing. But in retrospect, now that I'm older, I'm like, yeah, he should have been mad, mad at me. <laughs> like, so, uh, you know, like one that. lesson to the young entrepreneurs if you, you're obviously most of you're going to have a job yeah, yeah, while you're starting what you want to start yeah. you might want to do the business on the off yeah, you know okay. but before nine after five <laughs> okay but if you're running a school don't do it at lunchtime <laughs> <laughs> so the model okay so you you had the workshop uh base room model um you talked about expanding and getting people in to help further this process and expand it. How did you decide how you wanted to do it? How do you get more teachers, more people involved? Yeah, so we, um, you know, we had a lot of uh, friends and acquaintances who wanted to help, and we just brainstormed together how we might take the energy of the world. The workshop is a very magical thing. It's just been, it's great. Um, from the very get-go, uh, every single year, about 80% of the kids go on to college who go to the workshop, and 80% stay in college, wow. which matches the same statistics as high-income kids. So something's happening at that workshop. Yeah. And um, and then, you know, a bunch of us just thought about, like, well, how could we duplicate this at school? We couldn't do a workshop for the whole school or for the whole senior class, so how do we duplicate it? Um and uh, it wasn't didn't take rocket science to say, well, we'll write a curriculum mm-hmm. that duplicates what happens in the workshop, and we'll write a curriculum, and then you guys, then the school can do that curriculum in classes okay. at, back at the school. Oh, that's so it seems like a very yeah. um, 
And we're still at three days still, or has it, it expanded? three and a half days. Three and a half days, right? okay. So we'll write a curriculum and create a college summit class. Oh, I like that. And so teachers can teach the college summit class back at their school, and we'll write the curriculum. Um, seem like a obvious and relatively benign approach yeah. that has gotten us... Well, it's gotten as far and in all sorts of trouble. <laughs> Not trouble, like, but it's it's a Gordian knot once you gotcha. go down it. Be, be careful what you model because um, it's going to be very, very complex. And in the very beginning, and like like I said, this is before computers, yeah, laptops, um, we worked solely with a, our piece of technology was a fax machine. Oh, okay. And so I would <clears throat> I remember very keenly typing lesson plans faxing them to JB and JB would mimeograph them and fax them to the schools. I think wow. he had a mimeograph or he had a copy or something. Oh, and we were faxing lesson plans to schools oh, wow. as we wrote them. <laughs> that must have um, been diligently just tiring me doing that. It was a little bit seat of pants. I, I mean, another funny story is um, my wife and I, my wife actually had um, uh, fairly serious surgery, uh, which she was fine, but... Um, okay. And uh, we were literally, we were going to Paris for her to just recuperate and take some time off. And we're literally getting our bags together and the, going to the airport. And I'm literally typing lesson plans and sending uh -huh. them off to do faxing with JB as we're getting ready. So that, that was the atmosphere yeah. of it. Um, and, um, you know, we got, you know, you start doing that and you do enough lesson plans and lo and behold, you have a book. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And so we created the College Summit uh, textbook for 12th graders, which we call, it, um, uh, the, the ones for 9th, 10th, and 11th are called Launch. That came much later, but we focused solely on the 12th grade. Um, and we call that Navigator. So Navigator. Navigator became our, the College Summit book. And then from that, the model really developed and it was very simply we train all these the kids who come to our workshop and then the kids who don't go to a college summit class back at their high school they use navigator and the kids we train at the workshop since we know they like to to teach each other and influence each other they would become the quote-unquote teaching assistants in the college summit classroom and then you'd have a faculty member teach the class well, that's awesome. that became the initial model for a whole 12th grade uh, implementation and where's Navigator? What states are you? Is that really functioning well for you? Um, the whole Navigator lesson plan. And like well, the, so the history of the program is that um, we did that. I mean, we're now we're talking 15, 16 years ago. Yeah, um, and we spread that um, all of, you know as to as many school districts as possible. We developed a fee for service plus philanthropy funding models so schools started so we were quite we weren't a for-profit but we were using for-profit um, techniques um, we we're literally selling a program for a fee yeah. that was not covering all of our expenses and so we were making up the, the the other part with philanthropy so it was a philanthropy fee for service mix and so we had to become adept at uh, sales marketing that's uh, philanthropy how development. That, how did that feel for you? Because, like you said in the beginning, you know, you were in the love of just the fact that right. students were getting out of it. So, how did you feel comfortable with sales, like making sure yeah. that things? So, are in the beginning, line? I, I mean, for me personally, I was just, 
I really focused on and was leveraged for my educational content. So I just provided educational content. And we really divvied up the universe. JB ran the organization and he was the chief salesman. Okay. And then Derek was the youth development person and he ran the workshops and, and did all that. So we really siloed ourselves. Um, but what was interesting, and JB is just a natural say, he's a great salesman. No one ever taught him to be a salesman. He's awesome. Yeah. He's charismatic and passionate and energetic and dogged and <laughs> stubborn. He's a great salesman. So he was he's a great salesman. salesman. Yeah. And he spread this all over the country and branded us and met the right people. Um, but this is really, if you want to, this is a story of evolving complexity. It's like a snowball. We started with a workshop, then we became a 12th grade model. And then... Um, um, the schools were saying, well, 12th grade's too late. You guys need to start, or we love what you do. Can you start earlier? So um, we applied for a grant from uh, the Gates Foundation, who's been just a wonderful partner to us for a very long time, and um, they gave us a grant to build a um, curriculum for 9th, 10th, and 11th graders. Grade. Okay. And that's when I left my profession uh, as a headmaster and became... Got, really ran that grant and really spearheaded the development of the ninth, tenth, and eleventh grade curriculum called Launch. And we did. We had a great team. We built an education team and and uh, um, used what's called uh, uh, end user design principles. So we wrote lessons, but then we had teachers try out the lessons and they gave us their feedback. The kids gave us feedback. We rewrote the lessons and we did this loop for, for several years. We wow. created this um, this curriculum. And then uh, I really liked the curriculum. Obviously, I was very much part of it and naturally started to sell it. Mm, okay. And so when you ask me, well, you're the educator, how'd you like to? Well, I don't feel like I'm selling it, but I did like to talk about it. Okay. Passionately, passionately, talking, passionately yeah. talk about it. And in so doing, you know, my peers who were other educational professionals, you know, said, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, we trust you. Great, great. And I wanted to go back and ask you what you said about leaving Headmaster and fully go into this. Was that a hard decision for you? Because you had this duality going on with the school yeah. and then and this. Uh, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about that the summer. I made that decision just, just last week. Um, intellectually, it was not hard at all. So to make the decision was easy. I had, I had actually ha uh, had a long-term headmastership of a school that I love. My kids went there, but we had actually hit our peak okay. of growth, and there wasn't much for me to do except to be a caretaker. And I had a realization that I'm I'm just not a caretaker. I'm a, I like to build. So there was not much more. I, there was nothing more I could do for that school. It had reached its apex, um, and there was. Um, you know, there are other folks who like to be, and there's nothing wrong with being a caretaker. They just like to be caretakers. Yeah. So we, like, you landed off to someone else. Yeah. Um, so that was, that was easy for me to make that decision. The actual doing of the, making the transition was really hard. <laughs> In retrospect, okay. it was emotionally hard, hard for okay. me. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was hard okay. to build something up then leave it and go back down to square to to um, you know square one. One, yeah. Uh, it was it's hard, and we're and right now we're doing that at College Summit. We are back to square one at College Summit. We are rebuilding, restarting so, College Summit. So let's talk. So about I came back 
So then we built the, I, when we built out this ninth through 11th grade, sold yeah. it, uh, reached more students than ever in the history of College Summit. Yeah. And then I repeated the pattern again and said, you know what, I really want to, I had an opportunity to build out a middle school, charter school, design it, run it, yeah. staff it. I'm going to do that. Back to square one. <laughs> <laughs> and that was, I mean, I, there was a no brainer. I wanted to do it really hard. Yeah. Now that I look back on that process. <laughs> <laughs> and now I've come back to, to cause someone to be the CEO to restart us up. So let's talk about where you are now. 20 plus years, over 250,000 students Correct. served. Yeah. Uh, where are we going in the next yeah. five? So what happened, this is, uh, if you start, if you not only start an organization, but you really start a field. So college access, the notion, uh, not just the notion, but the practice of, of um, sending kids from low-income communities to higher education as an expectation, um, not an aberration, but the, this is the expectation. That, that was, no one was, very few people were thinking about that 23 years ago. So we were actually started an organization and a field and a movement, or we were part of that movement, pioneers in that movement. Um, when you are doing both at the same time, you accrete lots of activities mm -hmm. because you're starting to say oh this isn't happening this isn't happening i gotta do this i gotta do this i gotta do this i gotta do this so over the 20 years we did 11 things because sending you know re-engineering high schools so that they're not graduation focused but post-secondary focus there's a lot of stuff that has to go on you have to um you have to have curriculum you have to train kids, but you have to train principals. You have to retrain teachers. You have to create metrics. You have to um, collect data. You've got to analyze data. You've got to publish. Um, you've got to articulate uh, and communicate uh, results. Um, you've got to uh, drive legislation. You've got to inform policies. So policy has to change. We got into all of that. All of that. We were. JB and, and some other folks were really working hard on Capitol Hill to get policy into the you know federal policy, educational policy, so that the purpose of the American high school is post-secondary, not just graduation. Yeah. Um, we had to build a data warehouse, which we built with our great partner, Deloitte. Deloitte built it for us to measure whether kids were going to... Those measurement systems didn't exist 20 years ago. We had to measure... The milestone, there's certain milestones, there's about 26 milestones you have to achieve to go from ninth grade to um, college. We had to establish those, those milestones, we had to create the measurement systems. When you're creating measurement systems, you're getting into technology. Yeah. So we had to partner with technology companies to create a, a platform. And we, I mean, I could go on and on, but we got into all, all of that. that. Yeah. And so we became a very complex... Um, and very, uh, frankly, expensive organization. Um, and what happened, partly, I really think, I mean, College Summit had something to do with it, but others did too. So we were part of this field building movement. What happened is the field started to get built. Mm -hmm. And uh, people started to wake up and say, you know what, There's a, the statistics are raw. And they still are raw, by the way. But in 1970, 6% of low-income kids finished college. 6%. 1.1 million low-income eighth graders every year in American public schools, and 100,000 of those 1.1 million eighth graders will finish college. That's a million that won't. Mm. 
So they're raw statistics. And, and by the way, as of 2013, that 6% has only grown to 9% nationally. So it's still raw. Yeah. Um, but at least we, we have that statistic. Like yeah. back 20 years ago, we didn't know how many went to college. So there's this budding realization that this is a real, not only problem in America, but a real opportunity for America to build up its, its, its skilled labor force. And there's a lot of talent being left on the table. So what happened is that thousands of organizations, college access organizations, started to come in. So now, all of a sudden, we have all this competition. And there's a lot of organizations doing bits and pieces of what we were already doing. And the federal government started to wake up to it. It started to happen under the Bush administration. The Obama administration exploded. Like, mm -hmm. he really, I mean, he, he'll go down in history for many, many things. Well, one thing he should go down in history for is really shifting the focus of the American high school from graduation to post-secondary and making that a priority. And that, that's a great achievement for that, for that administration. Um, so the field that we helped start then started to really consume us. We were d doing a lot of things that are already being replicated and we were way too expensive mm. for philanthropists and we were too expensive for our partners. Gotcha. So um, just two years ago, uh, we started, well, we started to lose market share. We started to, we were at our apex of 50,000 students. We went all the way down to 22,000 students. Mm we had uh per year i mean per year um we uh we had lots of we had like i think at our height 175 school partners and that was dropping every single year our business plan there's a there's a whole um there are a whole sort lots of implications about how you price your product that will either inhibit your growth or accelerate it and one of the things we did unwittingly that inhibited our growth and really inhibited our mission is that we, cre we created a pricing point where the school paid per student served, per, per student served. Um, and so what schools did naturally was they said, okay, well, I've got, and by the way, the average was I have about $18,000 to spend on college access. I, I will spend $18,000 worth of college summit. That's not going to cover my student body because it's per school. So I'll just pick and choose who yeah. I serve yeah. until I get to about 18000 then I'll stop. So a lot of schools were like, you know what, I can only afford to serve the ninth and 12th grade. So that's all I'm going to do. So we were no longer serving the whole school because of our pricing model. Um, though principals wanted to serve the whole school, we wanted to serve the whole school. So it's really interesting that even though it was our mission to serve everybody and everybody wanted to serve everybody and we could serve everybody, we had the capacity to, we didn't because of our pricing model. That was the inhibitor. So one other lesson we learned is that your business model has to be the handmaiden mm -hmm. if you're a not-for-profit. Or even if you're a for-profit, it has to be the handmaiden of your program. Okay, gotcha. Can't you, in a way, it's... There's a mission model distinction in not-for-profits, and oftentimes the model drives the mission. It should be the other way around. The mission's driving the model. The model has to serve the mission. Um, but uh, we, you know, two years ago, all we were, you know, losing market share. People were telling us that we're, some of our programmatic elements were superfluous. Um, and we couldn't grow because of our pricing model. Even though we were serving at our apex 50,000 kids a year, there's 1.1 million a year that need to be served, right? Yeah. So we, we weren't going to scale, things like that. 
So uh, there were two real options for us to think about. Um, one was to just declare victory. Say, you know what, we ran our, our leg of the race. We ran our lap, yeah. and uh, we did it well, and we're really proud of our accomplishments, and now there are other folks who want to run it. Mm -hmm. Hand the baton off. And hand it off. Um, but, but, we knew, but it, we knew, though, that nationally, that figure of only 9% of low-income kids were finishing college, and it had only grown from 6%, there's still a lot of work to do. The other thing is, is that despite of the fact that there's thousands of college access organizations in the country, they still only serve 5% of low-income communities. Right. So there's 95% of low-income communities that really need the kind of services. That, so we knew that there was a lot of work to right do. There. The other thing that we knew, and we got this from our evaluation and from external evaluations, and this is the most important thing, is that the original insight, the original aha moment for us two decades ago, which is that the most influential person in a 17-year-old's life is another 17-year-old. The person they're most likely to listen to is another 17-year-old. And we saw that happen. That's how our program really expanded yeah, is because the kids were bringing it back, like Prometheus bringing fire back. Yeah. They were bringing college knowledge back. Um, no one else was doing that. And the American educational system is not set up systematically to leverage the power of peers, the power of 17-year-olds to influence each other. And we knew there was a long, long history of research showing the efficacy of peer-to-peer. -peer. And I don't mean near-peer. Near-peers are very powerful, but peers are powerful. People my age and um, influencing people, you know, high school students influence each other. There's a lot of research showing that that had great efficacy, positive efficacy in schools. In fact, one research study said the number one predictor of whether a low-income kid will go to college, the number one predictor, is whether their friends go. Hmm. If they happen to be with friends who are going, they're probably going to go. So no one was mining and leveraging the power of peer influence, and it wasn't baked into the system at all. So we knew that our original insights still had a great deal of not only validity, but, but relevance, particularly in this epoch of school reform where no one is satisfied with their results. Um, no one is satisfied nationally. They may be satisfied with their own results, but they're not satisfied nationally. And so we decided to restart ourselves up and jettison everything else that we've been doing, all those other stuff, yeah. because other folks are doing it. Mm -hmm and focus only on this one thing. And we said to ourselves, we are going to be really super disciplined. All we're going to do is train teams of 17-year-olds to go back to their school and, and serve on behalf of, of all the students in the school and wow. run campaigns to get them to do. And we were obviously, two decades later, we're much smarter and the research is much better about what they need to do yeah. to maximize post-secondary participation. We could distill it to three things, which is... Um, Everyone, um, if everybody in the school applied to three or more colleges and, uh, and submitted their financial aid form on time or early and made a plan for their life, those three things, planning, multiple college applications, and early FAFSA submission, increase your chances, your likelihood of enrolling significantly. Okay. So we can focus on just three things, focus on one driver of those three things, peer influence. Um, we asked ourselves, what would that organization look like? And what it looks like is a very simple organization, a very focused organization, an organization that's very economical. Uh, to uh, The price goes down. Uh, the reliance on philanthropy goes down. It can be much more uh, heavy leveraged, much more limber uh, and nimble. Mm 
Mm -hmm. um, we didn't need, we had 12 bricks and mortar sites around the country at the, in the old model. We yeah. didn't need sites anymore. We had 12 basically little college summits. We only need one college summit. Mm -hmm. So we really simplified ourselves and, um, and uh, restructured and reorganized everything. Um, went back out to market and um, we just finished last week's um, training our last we did five uh, workshops this this summer and we um, are gonna uh, field 110 peer leader teams and there and those 110 peer leader teams of four juniors and four seniors are gonna be impacting a hundred thousand kids this year Wow and our aim because we're nimble now is yeah. to really grow that the number of teams, teams. we want to get to 200 teams, teams yeah. 500 teams a thousand teams um, and that's where we're at so, so we're restart up so knowing that where you are now looking back do you, f do you wish you guys did this model first or do you like the trajectory that you went through to get to this point <laughs> well I obviously wish we had done this model <laughs> first but I don't think we could have done this model oh, first, first. <laughs> like you gotta yeah. go through I, I have to say this is silly but I remember um, when I was a kid, there was a bubble gum called Bazooka Joe bubble gum. I don't know if you guys are young, too young to know that, but but it was a little piece of gum, and it was wrapped up in a cartoon. So you got gum and a cartoon, a little tiny cartoon. And I remember one of the cartoons said, and I must have been five or six, but it stayed with me my whole life. It said, uh, uh, "Who's the toughest teacher ever?" And the answer was, it's like it was a riddle cartoon. Yeah. Who's the toughest teacher ever? And, um, and the answer was experience. And the reason is, is because experience gives you the test first and the lesson later. later. Mm, like um, that. And that's, tr it's that that's stupid true. little cartoon has stuck with me my whole life. It is true. Like, yeah. yeah, I wish we had done this 20 years ago, but there's no way we could have. That makes sense. Because we had to have the test first yeah. and go through all these iterations. But we couldn't have done it 20 years ago either because the field didn't exist. The only reason we can do this now is because the field exists. exists. I mean, to be very, very uh, uh, detailed about it, um, we used to have, no one ever counted, nobody ever ever knew how many kids submitted their financial aid form in a high school. Mm. So we literally hand counted them. Like, have you submitted yeah, yeah, yeah. it? You have? Here, register it on this platform. Yeah. Oh, you haven't? I will register that you have it, and by the way, get your stupid financial aid. Yeah. We literally hand counted them, and we were hand counting at one time, you know, 20,000 kids. Uh, that's quite distracting. Yeah. It was necessary because we had to show if we were having efficacy and results, but we couldn't. Now, the federal government does that. Every two weeks, every high school in the country knows what percentage of their students have submitted the financial aid form, and it gets posted on a website from the Department of Education. Okay. So this is an innovation. It just came about a few years ago. Yeah. The Obama administration spearheaded it. And the, but that little innovation that the federal government means I don't have to, my team doesn't have to do that anymore. Yeah. Um, which frees them up now to coach kids yeah. to drive campaigns. 20 years ago, I had Ten, to count them. Yeah. Five years ago, I had to count them. Yeah. Three years ago, we had to count them. But now we don't. Hmm. So I don't think we could have done what we're doing now 20 years ago because the field didn't exist. Yeah, that makes sense. So what do you say to the entrepreneur that's starting a for-profit, non-profit, new idea? Maybe it's a new field to them. Um, are you, would you say start small like you did in the areas that you can and then grow from there? Um, 
Yeah, well, I'll tell you my, um, I mean, people are going to disagree with me on this, but um, I would say start very small and then do very rigorous evaluation on what you're done. Um, and then from that evaluation, uh, learn about uh, what works and doesn't work. Jettison the uh, maybe the bright, shiny things that don't really have a lot of impact and focus on what does have impact and then build out a little bit more, do another evaluation and get to the core. The goal is to be as simple as possible. Simple. Okay. Simple as possible. Uh, to be able to describe, not only to describe what you do, everybody, you know, the elevator pitch, you need to describe it in a sentence or two. Yeah. But you also have to be able to do it simply. Okay. But it takes practice to make it simple. Yeah. Um, and it takes experimentation to make it simple. So I would start small, evaluate really rigorously, yeah. have third-party evaluations. But the evaluation shouldn't be about only does it work or not. Hmm. which you want to know if it works, but hmm. also, like, what's the simplest, cheapest, meaning least expensive way I can get these results? Yeah. And once you get it really simple to implement, not if you can, if you can implement it simply, you can describe it simply. Um, then you've got something. Hmm. you really, really got something. And the other thing is, is that you're part of an ecosystem, so you need to know your field, and you need to know that field in all of its dimensions. Everything. Policy, yeah. measurement, uh, economics, um, all that. politics, all of it. Um, and how do you feel about, because you had this, um, when you started working and also doing this on the side, some entrepreneurs either do that or they just go right into it. Right. How do you feel about that? Do you think you should always have, I guess, a backup plan or should you just go all the way in with your particular venture? <laughs> <laughs> well, that depends on... On the on the on, on who the you are. <laughs> I mean, uh, but for you, you felt that it served you well to to kind of have your nine to five and then do this as well. Yeah, I mean, I uh, it's such a personal thing, but I I needed a job. I yeah. needed to make money. Um, but also, I didn't have, frankly, I didn't have the temperament back then to yeah. just dive in. Um, uh, but JB did. JB didn't have another job. This is what he did. Yeah. This is all he did was calling Summit. For 23 years, all he did. He didn't have another job. Yeah. Um, and so he had the temperament just to dive in. I did not have the temperament. To, I was more cautious. And I also had, um, you know, I was a careerist. I had been, I have a doctorate in education. I've been preparing to be the head of a school. Yeah. To be a philosopher of school. Yeah. So I had this whole career thing going. Um, and JB was an entrepreneur. So I think it's more temperamental than anything else. What's good is to have a partner who's maybe all in, yeah, and, or you're the or a partner who's not all in but yeah. is an expert in the field and working in the field. Yeah, it was a, it was a good. In retrospect, it was a good balance um, between. balance between us and and Derek uh, uh, has his own consulting business, youth development consulting business. So he's he's an expert in his field. And he's got his practice, but he brings those learnings to College Summit. So it, it did work out, but one of us had to be all in, and uh, if JB was not all in, yeah. we would not be here. Mm. 
Well, that's good for being you. So if they want to find out more information about College Summit and what you guys are doing right now and where you're going further, even with the peer-to-peer, where can they go? CollegeSummit.org. 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 And find anything. Tell the whole story. Okay. Well, thank you, Keith, for being on this episode, and we'll talk to everyone next week. All right. Thank you. You have just listened to another episode of the USF Podcast. Find out more at www.universalstudentfund.org and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Universal Student Fund. 